Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Tomplay. nature it should be for people that are 18 years or older heed my warning people i do not get the facts of these cases off the internet or from some television show the facts we're retelling you were presented to us by the victims of the crimes or the perpetrators who committed the crimes against the victims my description of the crime scenes or what i saw with my own two eyes if you're gonna get offended Please turn this podcast off now. Thank you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Woody Overton. And I want to say one thing before we get started, y'all, and that is that Rathman has decided to pursue other opportunities and will no longer be on the RLRC podcast. I have enjoyed my time with him, and I wish him the best. What does that mean, y'all? It means you're going to get Woody Overton doing what he did for Real Life Real Crime to win the 2019 Podcast of the Year Award before I brought anybody else on the show. Now, I will have other guests on, on the show in the future, but no more co-hosts or anything like that. We'll have, I'm going to have other detectives that we've worked cases with and stuff like that, especially on the big cases. Come on, and, and um, it is what it is. So moving forward, today's episode is going to be a little bit outside the norm as far as the content, but remember this, I'm unfiltered, unedited. When I say unedited, I mean that I'm talking about, you know, Toby Tomplay is going to do some editing naturally to make this all sound better, but... It's, I'm not taking out any content or whatever. I'm not going to change anything that I've said. I mean, y'all have to remember that I go from memory, so everything may not be exactly correct, but it is correct to, to the best of my knowledge. So the name of the, today's episode is Finally Free. In 1991, I began my career in corrections with the Louisiana Department of Corrections, and I had to go, once I was hired, I had to go to the academy 
or Louisiana Department of Corrections Correctional Officer Academy at Angola. And at the academy, you actually lived on Angola in a dormitory, just like the prisoners do. And I'll get to that and, and explain more on that in a little bit. So I had to live there for however many weeks it was and go to classes all day long. And basically, they taught you how to be, or they taught you the basis of being a correctional officer, which is everything from the Louisiana Department of Corrections rule booklet that inmates have to follow to CPR to, you know, defensive tactics on, on how to, how to use a force and getting sprayed, just everything, firearms, whatever. It, it, I mean, it's pretty detailed academy, but it's just like the basic cop academy, the law enforcement basic training academy, it just gives you the basis, right? Your base knowledge of what you're going to be doing on the job as a, as a correctional officer. And so I went through that. Now y'all have history. The, the original song that I chose for real life, real crime in the beginning, the one that says, I don't want no sugar in my coffee, Lord, it makes me mean, makes me mean. I chose that song because of the prison theme to it. And I have history there. My, my mother was actually raised on what they call the B line at Angola. Now Angola is or at least it used to be the largest penitentiary. I think it still is the largest land-based penitentiary in the United States of America, one in the world. It has over 5,000 acres that these camps are on. They call them farms. They're spread out. Camps meaning the different housing units for the inmates. But it also has its own, it's so far out in the middle of nowhere, it has its own community. And inside the gates of the prison and where the, the civilians live is called what they call the B-Line, and it has housing for correctional officers and their families. And they even had, by way back then, they had their own little store, they had their own P.O. box, uh, their own post office, et cetera. So my mama was raised there, and I have many photos of her on actually inside the, the, the grounds of Angola on the B-Line as a small child. And my, my grandfather was the first ever parole officer to work on Angola grounds. And that's when my mom was a little bit baby girl. And he later went on to be the longest running district attorney in the state of Louisiana. But so I have a history in corrections, like the, the firing range in Angola is named the Brent Miller firing range. And that's for a guard who was killed there, brutally killed there. And I'm gonna do a story on that one day during some riots. And my mama went back and was teaching school. When she first graduated from college, she was an English teacher before she became a lawyer. And she taught Brent Miller when he was in uh, like fifth or sixth grade or whatever. So a lot of history. I always have have been fascinated with Angola and the the corrections system. So back it up. I go to the academy and I graduate and I'm assigned to Dixon Correctional Institute. And more commonly referred to as DCI. Let me tell you about prisons in Louisiana. You have basically three types, minimum security, and these are like your trustee places, a very small amount of guards. No, they don't have all the razor wire fencing and the gun towers and all that stuff. Basically people that are in for smaller offenses. But in Louisiana, when when you get sentenced to something, if your sentence is more than a year, then you get assigned to the Department of Corrections. If it's less than a year, 
then whatever parish you got busted in, you do your time in the parish jail. So I go to Dixon Correctional Institute, DCI, which is in Jackson, Louisiana, which is just maybe, I don't know, eight or nine miles from where I grew up. So I've always known about DCI. So, I mean, it's always been a part of uh, my history. I can remember playing peewee football outside the gates of the Jackson Mental Hospital, DCI actually had a, a branch or a unit, if you will, that had housed some trusty inmates there that did all the work on the at the state mental hospital. So I, I can remember the inmates looking at us through the fence when you know we practiced football, and I was like five or six years old. But so go to DCI, and you start out with on-the-job training. Yeah, you start out as a corrections cadet. And so on-the-job training, you get assigned to some training officer and you actually go train on the job. So now I have to bear with me. I'm going to put, put it together for you and explain how the prisons work. DCI is a, was a medium uh, to maximum security prison, but at least medium. And what that means is when you look at DCI, I don't know, like maybe a th- thousand, I can't say a thousand acres, something like that. It's a large complex, but the actual prison itself that's, contained inside the wire, we call it. If you're looking at it, you have an outer fence with concertina wire on the top, y'all. Concertina wire is simply that, that round wire. It looks like a slinky that's strung out, but it has razor blades attached all the way around it. Concertina wire on the top, and then you have a, an interior fence. In between that, on the, on the bottom of that fence, it has concertina wire all the way around it. So people couldn't jump up on the fence, right? And then on top of that fence, it has concertina wire. And then you have the next fence, which is the interior fence, and it has concertina wire on top. All the way around, gun towers all the way around the perimeter, which weren't weren't always manned. The one thing about the Department of Corrections, you were always shorthanded. But you, you could be assigned to one of several different areas. The gun tower, which mostly they, they put the females in. You can be assigned to a dorm, which I'll explain that to you in a minute, and which most prisons, most of all Louisiana prisons are dormitories, including Angola, and I'll talk about that. Or you could be assigned to an, an interior job uh, like a rec room or a kitchen or whatever. And then, of course, they had some day shift people who were assigned to jobs like what we call line pushers. That's the ones you see on the horseback in the field working the inmates that are growing their own vegetables, et cetera. I started out training just like everybody else and on a dormitory. And at DCI, when you drive through the gate, right in front of you to your right is what we call the White House. And that's the administration building where all the wardens and the secretaries and the staff work. But you had to go through security at the gate. You have the, the White House to your right, parking areas there, and then you... Dead in front of you is is what they call the walk. And now the walk expands the whole length of the prison north to south, and it connects all the different units, right? At DCI, on, on one end, you had, I think, what they call Unit 2, and that's to your left at all the way to full exterior. And Unit 2 stands by alone by itself. It has its own interior fencing. And in Unit 2, they have four dormitories that ran out the back unit. So when you walk into the unit, you walk into what they call the bullpen, and then you have to go through the main door, and you either go to the right to dorms one and two, or to the left to dorms three and four. These dormitories are huge, y'all. 
But it, it, and still looking at DCI, if you go to the right, you go to Unit 1, and their dormitories, I think, were labeled by letters instead of numbers, so it's not to get them confused with Unit 2. It's A, B, and C, and D. In the back of Unit 2, they had uh, an admin seg tier, which is administrative segregation, and I'll explain that in a second. And then past that, outside of their perimeter wire, on the back side of that wire was Unit 3, which is where the working cell block was, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, so you just bear with me. But I started out on the dormitory, and when, when you walk into the dormitory, let's say on, on Unit 2, you, you walk through Rec Room A, and you go to Dorm A. When you walk into the dorm, all you see is this huge room of beds, and, and they're not bunk beds. They're single-row beds lined all down the wall, and there's rows after rows after rows of them, right, as far as you can see. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of inmates were in there. But as soon as you walk into the left is what they call the sergeant's desk, and that's if you sat up on this raised platform, and you conducted the daily business or the nightly business of the inmates, and you had a phone or you would call in your counts, count being the count of the, the inmates in the prison. That's how they make sure nobody escapes. And it's done every every hour, but then every couple hours is what you call a major count where nobody can move while you count them. But you're sitting there, and then if you're sitting at the sergeant's desk, back behind you to your left, out of your sight, but you can see the doorway to it, but you couldn't see into it, was the bathroom or, or bathroom. I can't say it's not a bathroom, but it's a, you walk in, there's a bunch of shitters on your right-hand side, down along the wall, and then there's sinks on the wall opposite them, and then you go behind that wall, and that's your showers. So that's what the dormitories look like. Now, almost all of the prisons, including Angola, are dormitories, and it does not matter what your crime was on the outside that you did. That's not would classify you to where you lived inside the prison. Now, certainly we had, we had cell blocks, like I told you to work in cell block in, or like in Angola, you have death row or the most infamous cell block at, at Angola is camp J. That's where they house the worst of the worst, right? They can't live in general population, but it doesn't matter if you're a murderer or a child mo, a chomo, a child, child rapist or a burglar or whatever you are. When you get sentenced, Everybody gets sentenced in the state of Louisiana Department of Corrections. They first go to Elaine Hunt's Correctional Center, and that's they all go to the cell blocks when when, they, when you get there. And then they do a classification period on the inmates when they're there to determine their threat level and what prison you should go to. Like Angola, you're not going to Angola pretty much unless you get sentenced to 80 years or more. And in out of over 5,500 inmates in Angola, I think over 5,000 of them have more than one life sentence or life sentence plus. But the rest of them have 80, 80 or more years and shit, they're all going to die there, right? But DCI had, had a, a, a wide variety of people who were housed there. But again, Everybody gets arrested. You get sentenced. The judge says you're asked guilty. You, you sentence you to the Department of Correction for 20 years. They ship you to from whatever parish jail you're at to Elaine Hunt's Correctional Center. They classify you while you're there. You stay however long. And then they ship you out to your prison. If you got shipped to DCI, you could have anything from murder, negligent homicide, regular murder, rape, chomos, drug charges, whatever. But when I say medium security, these 
people have committed serious crimes. There's still a very real threat to society should they escape. The real job of the Department of Corrections is to protect the public from the inmates that have been sentenced to time in the state of Louisiana. So DCI, you had a, you had a full range of it. You had murderers and, and, and everything. So you, you never actually knew who you were dealing with in DCI, what kind of charge they had. That's not something they really talked about, the, the inmates. Let me talk, tell you also some differences. One is there's a difference between an inmate and a convict, okay? An inmate, I'm talking about inside the prison walls. All right, let me, let me digress. When you walk inside that prison wall and that door shuts behind you, it is a whole different world. The outside world rules do not apply inside the minds of the inmates or the convicts. And it's just a whole different world. The, it, everything gets looked at different. It's, it's a different set of rules, et cetera. But back to the inmates, I want to talk about the prisoners referring to each other or correctional officer referring to an, an inmate. It's kind of almost a derogatory term. They're usually the young, younger guys who, who start trouble or always getting fights or fighting with staff. They're running the dope. They're doing all the stuff. You know, always just breaking the rules and, and constantly fucking it up for everybody else, right? And a convict, is somebody who actually runs the prison. Correctional officers don't run a prison. Convicts run the prisons. And these are the people who are down for the rest of their lives generally that live there. They take their every little single right that they have or, or uh, allowance that they have in the rule book. They know it. All right. They're not trying to buck the system. They're not trying to, to get arrested inside the prison. They're not trying to do things that are going to cause them any kind of disruptions in their daily routine of life because they got to do their time. You know, the the old convict saying is, you know, you need to do your time. Don't let your time do you. And inmates that are always fighting the system, they're letting the time do them because they book up against the convicts, kind of reach a peace with it. But they're the ones who actually run the prison. And, And at any time, if the convicts ever got together and said, we've had enough, that's when riots start. So, Back to it. I do the on on the job training in the dormitory, and so I work the night shift. It's twelve hours, y'all. Six p.m. to six a.m. Different times of year, you had different things. Like during the summertime, the the rec yard would be open, and access to the rec yard, recreational yard, is actually off the back end of the dormitory. And by the time you get in on six o'clock, the uh, usually they're getting ready to shut that down and bring them in for the major first major count of the night. But so I'm working it. It's a totally different life. And I believe to this day, and I've always said that every cop that works the street should have to start out in corrections because that's where you learn the people that you're going to be dealing with for your entire career. You learn how they think and all that. If if you're ever on the street and you hear you see a cop dealing with somebody and they they call the cop Sarge, you know, that's an inmate or a convict that's been down and done prison time. But it's so it's the criminal mind fascinates me so much, and that's where I, this is where I really get it from, y'all, is my my young years in corrections. So trained on the dormitory, I train on a tower, you know, on different things. They, they train you in different positions, and then they assign you to your, your first post. And my first post was in a dormitory, like everybody else, right? Working nights, twelve hour nights. I get on shift, make the first count. The, on the dormitories, they have free movement. 
they can move to the showers. They, the rec room's right off the dormitories. The rec room's huge, big rec room, and they know what time they have to be back in to turn in for, for lights out in the dormitory and all this. And so you really, you're almost like you're a traffic controller or what have you, but there's so much that's going on underneath the scenes. The convicts have 24 hours a day how to figure out how to get over on the correctional officer or to beat the system and do it slickly and get away with it. So yeah, I'd get there and, and, you know, you go through your normal nightly routines, but then as it got later and then the lights out and stuff and you're making your counts throughout the night, you know, I would catch people doing different things. I didn't just sit up there and draw a paycheck. Now I'll tell you this about corrections and the same as every other profession. There are some of the best people in the world that work corrections right next to where some some of the shittiest people in the entire world. And it's unfortunate but it's like that about every job, but corrections is specifically like that. You get some people that are in there doing 20, 30 years uh, as a CO or correctional officer who just don't give a fuck. And all they're doing is showing up, drawing a paycheck, they're looking the other way. Uh, they also, you get the ones who smuggle in drugs. All, almost all the drugs in in Illegal things that are brought into the prisons are brought in by corrections officers that are on the tape. So anyway, I was kind of made a name for myself right off the bat on doing little shakedowns of people. Uh, I would just get a feeling about somebody and you can go up to them at any time and, and shake them down. And I, I would find little amounts of dope. I've found some weapons and things like that. I'll tell you a funny story. I remember sitting at the desk and I was always paying attention to all the people. I noticed this one guy, he was like on the first row down the wall, probably 10 bunks down, something like that. And he, he used to sit there and face me, and but he would be reading the book. And at times, when I would happen to look over his way quickly, I would see him watching me over the top of his book. And, and I thought, well, you know, some shit's not right here, right? So I was watching him, and then I would, would vary what time I would look over at him, et cetera. But anytime I would get up, make a movement, and he was looking at me like I was going to get up, he would turn his head and look at somebody across across the dorm. And then it took me a while. I'm talking about over a month or so, y'all, playing this game with him. And I found out he was looking over, and I found out he was looking at another inmate across the dorm. That inmate was doing nothing but watching this guy who was watching me, right? So anytime I'd go to get up, this guy that's watching me would turn his head. That guy that was watching him would turn his head, and he'd look back into the bathroom, and, and I figured out, okay, so they got some shit going on in the bathroom. That well, If I go to get up, they automatically know this is like their silent alarm system. So I, I, I got their ass one night, and I waited, and I and. And I noticed the guy was watching me over his book and I acted like I was on the phone. And then I hung the phone up and I hauled ass into the bathroom. It's about eight o'clock at night. I hauled ass into the bathroom before they could do their alarm system. And I go in past the shitters. I go into the shower wall and I, I turn the corner and there's one inmate having anal intercourse with another inmate. He wasn't raping them because the, the guy he was doing it to was certainly getting off on it. And they were butt naked going at it and the dude turned at me he looked at me and he never missed a stroke and he said sarge i know i'm going to the hole i know i'm going to the hole but let me get this nut sarge i'm going to the hole anyway just let me get this nut and i'll come out and i, I can be under arrest uh as soon as i get done so fuck it, i turned around i walked back out to the desk i called up for the captain and them uh, to come arrest him 
I wasn't going to go jumping between two naked, uh, sweaty guys, right, with hard-ons and try to stop them. So let's talk about that. Inside the prison, you can be arrested, okay, but they have what they call high court and low court write-ups. Now, low court write-up, if an inmate didn't make his bed right, they have a lot of rules and shit, y'all. Let's say an inmate doesn't get up on time uh, um, or is refusing to get up time. Let's use that. Let's say that the inmate doesn't make his bed right. That is, you can then go and they have paperwork. You go and you write up your report. Say inmate such and such DOC number. They always go by the numbers. DOC number, whatever. Uh, on such and such date, I, Corrections Officer Overton, observe that Joe Blow didn't make his bed to the whatever standards in violation of whatever. And then it was a carbon copy back then y'all and you, you would take tear one off to be, be turned in and you you would keep one yourself and you would take one and you give it to the inmate but basically it's like getting a speeding ticket right the the uh that's in lieu of arrest that you should say you have to show up to court then on whatever their court date was their low court date was they would go in and there's a couple corrections officers and usually like a social worker somewhere to sit down and they read the charges to him and say, how do you plead guilty, not guilty, whatever. Well, we find you guilty, and, and they'll take something from him like 10 days, no phone usage, some bullshit like that, something small. But the high court write-ups, you, you got a high court write-up, you got arrested inside the prison. The high court write-up, it was for getting caught with dope, uh, fighting with weapons, fighting another enemy with weapons. Now, regular fisticuffs. That, that was a low court write-up. It was a more serious low court write-up, um, but you didn't go to the hole for it. Fighting with weapons or attacking another, uh, attacking a correctional officer, period, in any type of way, that's a high court write-up. Uh, having sex with another inmate, it's, it's, it's against the rules. That's a high court write-up. So those are the kind of things, if you caught somebody doing it, then you, you had to actually place them under arrest. You, you, had, you cuffed their ass up and called for them to come get them and they took them to the admin seg tiers till they had their high court date, their high court write-up date. And at the high court, if the, depending on whether or not they found them guilty, guilty, look, they call witnesses and shit, y'all. I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a big deal. They found them guilty or not guilty, whatever you found guilty, then you get sentenced to the cell blocks or, or the working cell blocks, WCB is what we call it. And like the guys that caught screwing, they both, they both got locked up. I don't know what happened to them, if they went to the working cell block or not. But back to it, the, the, when I was working in the dormitory, it was summertime, and it was they were closing up the yard, getting ready for the first major count, and I told some inmate something, and he just kind of looked at me stupid, and I told him to come with me, and he turned around, and he walked out into the yard. Well, I couldn't leave my post to go get him. Oh, refusal to follow direct verbal order, was a lockup offense, right? I mean, and say he knew he had whatever order I'd given him, he refused it and he walked off. He knew I couldn't go out there to go get him. So I guess he thought I was going to let it go. I didn't. I I called it in. We didn't have radios, y'all. You had on the dormitories, you had phones. And I called it in. I said, hey, I need a a supervisor to come down here. I got a guy who walked out. So who comes? Captain Ray Newman. Now, Ray Newman was about five foot one bulldog. Okay. And he didn't put up with any bullshit. He, he's a, you know, career correctional officer. He ended up being like 
I don't know, colonel or something uh, before he went to work for East Feliciana Sheriff's Office. But he came down. I told him what happened. He said, man, he, he, he said, come point him out and then point him out when he came in. And they, he cuffed him up. He said, Woody, next time this happens, I want you to absolutely grab a hold of him, jump on him, use whatever force necessary to, to, to affect the arrest. I'm like, cool, okay. I, I didn't know I could do that, right? And just for telling the guy something and, and him walking away, he said, nope, next time you handle your business. And, and they liked the job that I was doing. I was, you know, finding good contraband. I was getting, I, I wasn't riding people unnecessarily. Shit, there was enough bad stuff going on, but I was being proactive. And, and again, a lot of the correctional officers didn't give a shit. They would just show up, draw their paycheck, do the minimum amount they had to to get through their shift. I wasn't doing that. I was proactive, just like everything else in my career. So Newman told me, he said that he came back and he said, look, man, he said, you're doing such a great job. He said, we're not going to waste you on a dormitory. I need you to work rec room A's door. Now, he, he said, because it's, a, it's the highest in this whole unit, it's the highest volume, traffic volume point. And I need you there to you know find your weapons and find the dope and control things and, and run the rec room in, in itself was a real bitch. And he said, so we're not going to waste your talents on the dorm. We've got plenty of people that can sit back here for 12 hours a night and do nothing. So moving to the rec room aid door. And so you walk into the main door of the unit. You have to get through, a, first of all, outside what they call a sally port. Sally port is a man trap. And you walk in when you're coming on shift. they got a guard up in the tower. It, they open the gate. You walk in. They close the gate behind you. There's a shakedown shack right there. They check your shit, your lunchbox and all that. Once you're clear, they open the interior gate and you move into the actual unit itself. Now, those two gates were never open at the same time. Then you go down to the main door of the unit. When you walk into what they call, that had to be open, unlocked, you walk into what they call the bullpen. The bullpen is where we had roll call and all that, and it was for officers or during the daytime in any inmate that entered into that bullpen had to be strip searched. Anytime you left one area of security to another area of security in prison, you had to give, give an inmate a full strip search. So you go into the bullpen, and once you clear into the bullpen, the kitchen is right in front of you, and you turn right, and you had the captain's office, but it, it just past that was the door to rec room A. If you turn left and went down the hall, there was a door to rec room B, and it was, it was generally... That side of the prison was more older inmates, less trouble, et cetera. So he put me on the door to rec room A. Loved it. I mean, yeah, I might have three, four hundred inmates in the rec room at a time. And back then, y'all, you wouldn't believe the, the shit. Like on weekends, they rented them movies. That's back when they still had movie stores. They had played cards in the back of the room. The big course, the big attraction was the television. They played, had all these tables set up in, in the back where they played cards and checkers and shit. And they had, had a barber station and all that. But in the back were dorms uh, A, B, and C, and D. The, and so you were controlling all the volume, all the kitchen workers that had to go out. Any staff that had to come in and out to that whole side of the prison, I controlled it. So it, it was never boring. I mean, it, it was it, it was plenty of shit for me to figure out. Now, I had a couple of strikes going against me. Remember I told you when you go inside the prison, the mindset's totally different. Okay. Being a white male gives you a disadvantage in inside the prison. I'm not being racist. I'm just telling you the fucking truth. 
but being a good looking white male, a good looking young white male, they automatically thought you were gay. And I know I'm going to get some Cajun queen laughs about this and shit like that, but that's, that's their mentality. They also think, like the two guys I call having sex in the bathroom, they don't think of themselves as being gay. The 90% of them don't. They don't think of themselves as being gay. They say, I'm a convict. I'm locked up for this many years. I'm going to do what I got to do to release myself or get my sexual pleasures while I'm in here, but I'm not gay. They'll tell you, I'm not gay. Yeah, you caught me fucking this guy in the ass, but I'm not gay. Uh, I like women when I'm out, right? So, but I would I would constantly get tried because I was young, good-looking white guy, so they automatically uh, assume that you're effeminate or whatever, which I wasn't. And I was locking motherfuckers up all the time, and I made a name for myself, right? So in the, the side of the prison that I was working, y'all remember this, these dorms that I was working were one step above cell blocks, all right? These are the new guys. These are the inmates. These are the punks. These are the guys that had the shittiest jobs in the prison, uh, the least amount of privileges, if you will. And, I mean, they were the troublemakers. So I was always busy. And what happened was... One Sunday night, when I shut the rec room down, you close it down, and everybody has to go catch their house or go to their dorm, except for a couple of trustees or whatever uh, that work different jobs, and and they get to stay up to maybe like midnight and and watch the TV. But I had still had to work the door. One of my jobs was to clear the rec room, send them in for their count that uh, that major count. I think it was like ten o'clock, something like that. This rec room was huge, y'all, huge, huge room. So I say, hey, catch your house, rec room's closed. Well, shit, they fucking know it. We've been doing, you know, six months, however long it was. They know it, and most of the people get up and, and comply, and they may grumble about it or whatever, and they drag ass a little bit and, you know, stop at the water fountains and stuff like that. Well, this one dude was standing on the back wall by the water fountain, and he's standing, he's got a drink in his hand, and he's standing with his one foot, raised up, resting against the wall, the other foot flat on the floor, and he's a big son of a bitch. Now, I'm 6'2", and back then I was probably like 220 or so. I'm 6'2", I'm in good shape, and I'm young. This dude was probably mid-20s, like 6'4", and prison muscles. I mean, he was he was jacked up, right? And, I mean, I'm watching him, and everybody's milling on him, on back to the dorm shit, and I'm watching him, so this motherfucker ain't going to go. And I, and I made eye contact with him, and he turned his head. And, I, and I'm sitting in my chair, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and it's clearing out. And I said, all right, I'm going I'm to have to go get him, right? So I, went, I stood up, and went back there, and I said, house, catch your house. He said, fuck you. And I'm like, you, you, y'all, you never knew what was going to set these guys off, right? I mean, they may have just got dumped by the girlfriend on the phone that the phones were in the back of the record too. They may have just got dumped by the girlfriend on the phone or they may have had a bad day or whatever, but they're not, none of them are in there for being choir boys. All right. And, and so he said, he told me, he said, fuck you. I said, no, fuck you. Now you're under arrest for refusing to follow my direct verbal order. I said, well, wait right here. I'm going to get you right up and I'm going to call him and you're under arrest. And, he said, fuck you, and he turned to walk into the dormitory. And now when you walk into the dormitory at that time of night, they had just turned the lights out, so the only lighting was, the main lighting was in the um, right over the sergeant's desk, and they had two sergeants on this dorm working. It was huge. It ran in both directions. So he turns, he says, fuck you, and turns to walk. Now what clicks in my head? 
Captain Ray Newman said, you tell, you give a motherfucker a direct verbal order, he doesn't follow it, you got to use whatever force necessary to bring the situation under control. Let me tell you this. I didn't have a radio. I didn't have phone. I had no way of communications. I didn't have any spray. They don't let you, you don't carry batons or any of that bullshit inside the prison because they could be taken and used against you, right? The one thing I did have was a pager, but it was a reverse pager. And if I hit my pager button, it went to the uh, command center, which was actually at the White House. I told you about at the front of the prison that controlled all the radio traffic for the people that did have radios and the towers and shit, the whole prison and communications. And you hit that and it goes off as emergency alarm rec room. A that comes into the dispatcher up there and in emergency alarm rec room. A then she gets on there and broadcasts out all units. We have an emergency beeper activated rec room. A all units respond. Then the cavalry's coming, right? God and everybody's coming back there, you know, to, to, uh, to help you. But, they're coming from all over different places of the prison and they got to get through all these locked doors. And so it's going to take some time unless somebody's have happens to be close. Now, correctional officers, two things, they're civil service employees. Y'all there's very few things that you can be fired for on the spot. But as a correctional officer, one naturally is getting caught, bringing contraband into the prison. You're asked getting arrested anyway, and you get fired on the spot Two, And the biggest golden rule is if one correctional officer is fighting with an inmate, you jump in, no matter what the harm is to yourself, you jump in and you help fight to bring the situation under control. All right, so remember, he told me, fuck you. He's walking into the dorm. He knows I can't leave the rec room. He thinks I can't leave the rec room. I hit my pager, and it's on. So I run in, and I grab him by the arm, and it's a big bitch. I grab him by the arm, and when I did, he turned around, and he swung, and he smacked me right dead ass in the mouth, and then it was Fist City. All that bullshit they teach you, defensive tactics and empty hand control and all this bullshit, brachial stuns, it all goes out the window when the fists start flying. And I came up fighting, right? He punched me. I punched him. Fist city. Now, we're going at it. Boom, 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 boom. We end up on the ground. And I didn't even think about it. It was just a natural reflex for me so we're fighting i mean we are fighting and, and if you've ever fought somebody and you've been down on the ground for a couple of minutes it seems like an eternity and what i didn't realize kind of because i was kind of i wasn't a rookie anymore i was a sergeant but what i really wasn't thinking about when i did this was i'm i'm surrounded by hundreds of inmates that are watching now they've all come to the front of these dorms that are watching me fight this guy and one of the correctional officers was trying to keep them back and then trying to maybe reach over and help me some, the, the other motherfucker never got up from the desk. And so, but anyway, I'm fighting, we're fighting, blow, blow, blows, man, at Fist City. And finally, other units, the emergency units uh, start responding, the captain and the lieutenants, the roving securities, and they get in and they pile in and, you know, get this big, big bastard under arrest, put him in handcuffs and get up. And get Newman gets me up and he's like, Woody, what the fuck, man? And he takes me out, and he puts somebody on my post. And he takes me to the captain's office. He said, what the fuck? And I think, my, like, my lip was busted. Maybe my eye was swollen or whatever. I mean, it was a long fight. And he said, what the fuck are you doing? And, and I said, hey, you told me if I gave a dude a direct verbal order and he refused to follow that I had to do whatever 
use whatever force necessary to bring the situation under control. I told him to stand right the fuck there. Well, I was going to come call you, and he's going to get arrested, and I was going to do my write-up. And he, he told me, fuck you again, and he turned around, and he walked onto the dorm. I said, so I put my hands on him. As soon as I put my hands on him, he turned around, and he punched me dead ass in the mouth. And then I went to Fifth City, and he was like, oh, my God, man. He said, you know, you could have started a riot. And I said, hey, Newman, you told me to do that shit. He said, you're right. He said, you're right. I did tell you to do that. He said, look, they brought the nurse to look at me and shit. Of course, I was fine. No worse ass whooping than I've ever taken anywhere else. But they bring the nurse in to check me out. And he had to call the warden and shit. It was a big fucking hoorah, right? And the motherfucker don't tell me to do something and and expect me not to do it. But he, he came back to me and said, listen. We're going to send you home for tonight. I'm like, what? I said, am, am I getting fired? I'm in trouble. And he said, no, no, fuck that. He said, you're not in trouble, but you got to go home. And he said, we can't send you back on that unit at, back there. I mean, you know, it could cause a riot, right? What if, what if his homies uh, are, are pissed off about you being in a fist fight and, and all that? He said, just trust me, go home, and, and you got to go see the warden and, uh, on Monday. Fuck it. I went home on Monday. Oh, I got the, he called me later on and, and told me to be at the White House at whatever time on Monday. And so I did. And our warden was Burl Kane, who's now just been promoted to head of the Department of Corrections for the state of Mississippi. But at the time, he was the head warden for Dixon Correctional Institute. And he had always been the president of the civil service for all state employees. Then he later on, after I, I left DCI, he went to be the warden of Angola. He could have been the the head of the Department of Corrections, he didn't want it. He brought up another guy who was an assistant warden at the time at DCI, got him head of the Department of Corrections when whoever it was retired, but he went to Angola and, listen, the warden in Angola, a warden period, has a lot of power. So I walk into his office, and he's, he's a real nice guy, a real nice man, a real Christian man. He said, have a seat, son. And I sat down, and he said, he said, son, tell me exactly what happened. I told him, I said, look, I gave him a direct verbal order. He told he said, fuck you. I, mean, I told him to catch his house. He said, fuck you. And I told him to stand right there. He was under arrest. And I went to, you know, to go make the call. And he told me, fuck you. And he turned and walked onto the dorm. I said, so I, I put my hands on him and I arrested him. And then I said, I, I, I was directed to do that. And he said, well, you know what? Technically, by the letter of the law, you're correct. And, and he said, you absolutely did the right thing. And he said, no, listen. He said, I've been keeping track of your career and you are, are, you know, absolutely going above and beyond, making arrests all the time, finding dope, finding weapons, uh, you know, catching people doing shit that other people can't catch or they don't care to catch them do. He said, I got a spot for you, son. He said, well, I'm going to send you to where the worst of the worst are. And, and the working cell block and the admin seg tiers back in unit three. He said, you, obviously, you're not afraid to fight. He said, well, you go back there. You're going to have to fight all the time. It's, but you don't, and it's like I used to teach young cops. He said, you don't have to go out of your way to look for a fight. Said, I'm not saying that you did on this one. You did exactly what you were trained to do. He said, but because these, these guys back there are going to buck up and give you enough reason to fight almost every day. And he was right. So I'll tell you about this. Working cell block, admin seg tiers, unit three. Now, this is a whole different unit than units one and two. It has its own concertina wire, its own access to it, but it sits behind that unit two I told you about. And when you walk into it, it's a much, much smaller unit, but because it's only cell blocks. When you walk in through the bullpen, you have your 
your correctional officer area or whatever in the front, and you have to walk past the control room and get buzzed into the back part to to the holding area or, or control area for the different tiers. So you, you get buzzed into that door. The correctional officer that's in the control room controls all that. And, and they buzz you in, and right in front of you was tier A, and to the left was tier B. Now, these were admin seg tiers, administrative segregation tiers. If you got arrested, like when that night when a guy and I got in a fight, he would have been handcuffed and brought back to the admin seg tier. They bring you back there. They lock you up. They put you in this one man per cell. And only people in admin sec tiers, people who are waiting their high court dates, okay, for like the, the guy I got in the fight with. People who needed protections uh, uh, from other inmates like ch- chomos, child molesters, and, and shit like that. And people who were on suicide watch. And, and so this is long ass tier. I don't I can't remember how many cells, like 100 or maybe less, but. This long ass tier, the cells are only on one side and it's one man per cell. You walk, you have to tell the uh, control room, open, open A, and, and that she'll pop the door and you walk onto the tier and you shut the door behind you. And, you, and now the cells, y'all, let me describe it to you. When you face in the cell, it has a physical metal door, solid metal door with a trap door in the middle of it that you open with a key that you had on your belt. But there, there were no cell bars like there are in the movies. In place of the bars, they had heavy metal wire screens, which are intertwined that you could see through, but they were like diamond shaped. Uh, you couldn't put your hand through it or anything like that, but it's heavy intertwined welded metal. Okay. That you see that. And that's the main part instead of cells. So you had the admin sect here, there. Then the next one over was uh, admin sect tier B and then there was a separate locked door that went back to the WCB or the work and cell block that you had to tell them buzz that door. They buzz in. You, there's a different holding area and there's a tier one and tier two, kind of like the admin seg tiers, except for these tiers, there were two men to sell and these fuckers were the, were the real bad guys. Okay. To get sentenced to the work and cell block. Then that's not admin seg where you're waiting on a hearing or being on protection or whatever. To get locked back here, it didn't matter what your charge was on the outside. Remember I told you all that you got classified at hunts for that. The only way you got sentenced to work in cell block is you had to attack an officer. You had to get caught selling drugs or fighting with weapons. It might have been something else, but I, I can't remember. Those are the main things. And so when you got that charge and you got sentenced by the high court to the work in cell block, then you had to go back there for 90 days at a minimum without a low court or a high court write-up. If you didn't get any low court or high court write-ups, you went back before the board, the review board in 90 days, and they determined then if you were fit to go live in population again. Okay, So these are all the guys that broke all the worst rules in the prison. They can't live in general population because they're you know, stabbing people or attacking officers or whatever. And they're the worst of the worst. But imagine this. You're a badass. You get sentenced to 90 days on the work and cell block. And you got to do 90 days before you even get a review, at a, a chance of getting out. If you got a low court or a high court write-up during that 90 days, it doesn't matter if it was your first day. 
And the low core, remember, that could be for something like not having your shoes lined up correctly underneath your bunk, something stupid, something small. You get one of those, then the rest, say you get a low core right up on your first day, then the rest of your, your 89 days, you know automatically when you go before the review board, your ask is getting sentenced to another 90 days on the WCB. So what happens? If you, if you, they got, these were all the fuck ups anyway. And, and chances of them doing 90 days without a write up of any kind was almost nil, uh, uh, zero. But if you got a write up, then you got to show your ass for the rest of the, the 90 days. So especially a high court write up, you go back there and you have to arrest them in, on the working cell block and you have to, physically remove them from the cell, put them on the admin seg tier where they just like everybody else, they had to wait for their high court date to come back around, which high court was going to send us our ass back to the working cell block anyway. But their 90 days didn't restart. You had some people back there who had been back there for fucking 10 years that they couldn't get out. Right. And, and so it was a real hard place to work. Now it put me back there. It's a totally different learning experience. I, from the prison, these guys are some of the worst of the worst, but yet some of the truest convicts there are. All right. And, and first, when I first got back there, they tried me, man. They tried every fucking trick in the book from getting too much laundry stuff. Okay. So I show up at six o'clock going, I, I, first thing you got to do is make your major count. They don't leave their cells. They're locked up. There's no fucking rec room, none of that bullshit. There's a TV spaced out down the tier. They weren't allowed. TVs in the cell, two of them to a cell, and that's a four by eight cell. And in that cell, the majority of it's taken up by their two bunks. And then they had their locker stored underneath the bottom bunk, the foot lockers with, with their personal belongings in it. And their shitter was right there beside the bunk. And it's made out of solid stainless steel and it has the mirror on the top, the sink on the top, and the shitter on the bottom. And that's where they get the term courtesy flush from. Because you're in, a, in there taking a shit with your celly, you're so close together. Every time you plop one down, you give them a courtesy flush. You, you want to flush that thing away before it can stink up your cell too bad. I'm just telling you all prison terms. I'm not trying to shock you. So, and it's a small space. So, that, anyway, got back there. Nightly duties would be like, you know, whatever, go down, do the counts. And the nurse would come through like at 9 o'clock. And they got out to shower like three times a week or something like that. They were spaced out. And you would let them out to shower one cell at a time. You give them a chance, a broom to clean their cell, shit like that. So it was, but it was never boring because these assholes were always giving you a reason, right? But I became real cool with a lot of them because they knew I wouldn't take any shit. Like, give an example. I went down in the beginning. One, one of them tried me. I gave him a direct verbal order to do whatever uh, through the screen. And he was like, yeah. smacked his lips and spit on the floor in front of me. Well, that's the ultimate sign of disrespect. So I said, okay, I got something for you, Hoss. So I walked and I left the tier and I, I went and I'm, I could tell you I did this, but I'm not telling you that I did this. I went and I wrote up, I said, while making rounds on, on cell block, whatever, I gave inmates such and such a direct verbal order and he told me to go fuck myself, you pretty white boy, come in here and get you some of this ass. I'm going to beat your ass. So I wrote him up for that charge and therefore, it's a serious enough charge. And I, would, the, I take his copy. And remember, he's still locked up. He's got no idea this is coming. I roll it up. And I go down there. And, and he doesn't know I'm coming. And go down the tier. 
and I get to the screen where the little holes are, and I roll up just enough to fit. I say, hey, Holmes, I push it in, and I pop it. Poof. And I said, there's some mail for you, Jack. Read that. I turn around, walk off the tier. I know what's going to happen next. They're like, you motherfucker, when they start reading it because there was a little bit of a bullshit charge in there, right? But he knew that gray area that he could spit and disrespect me, and they were going to do that. It's all about respect inside the prison. And now I know I just hooked him with a little bit of the pen is mightier than the sword. I know that we're going to have to go down there and extract him from the cell, and I know he's going to fight. And and then I was told how to do this by some senior people. I won't say who. That is how, this is how you establish control over the worst of the worst. So then we go down there to get him out. He's screaming. He's hollering. He's kicking the door. We know we got to make a cell entry. He's flooded to tear. Later on, I got smart. But, but what they would do in the beginning before I got smart on it was they would stick shit in their, in their toilet, and they would let the water run, and they flood their cell. So if you got to go in and fight it, you get down there, they'd be in nothing but a pair of drawers and their, their running shoes, right? So they can get traction. And you got to go in and fight them, and and they're sweaty and they're hot anyway because there's no air conditioner. You got to go in and fight them and extract them from the cell, and so you have to go do it. I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was a fight, right? I don't care how strong you are, you go in to fight somebody like that in a small space, even on the street. It and and they want to resist, and, and they're fighting back. It, it takes a bit to get them, right? So go down there, have to extract them. Get him over to the admin sect here, but, but but the point was made that you don't fuck with Woody Overton, all right? If, but I wasn't, I didn't go out of my way to fuck somebody over. I, I wasn't down there trying to be a super police or anything. I was just like, hey, follow my fucking rules, and let's let's do our time together. Uh, I'm not gonna bother you. You don't bother me. Uh, but I mean, if you get out of line, I'm gonna handle my fucking business. And and they knew that. So those that was one of the ways I established that. So it was really funny. When every 90 days, when they'd get a new guy on the tier, they'd get sentenced to the working cell block. Somebody would get out and somebody would get sentenced from the high court when we had room. And the, the old convicts, I ended up being cool with like, you know, 70% of the tier, right? I would stop and bullshit with them, et cetera. They wouldn't disrespect me. I wouldn't disrespect them. The uh, Like at nine o'clock when the female nurse came down to bring medicine, I had to walk through and, and physically sell a cell so I knew who was on what medicine, et cetera. When I walked on the tier, I said, all the noise, nurses on the tier, you could hear a pin drop because they knew if they didn't hold a noise, I was coming back there and I was going to hook somebody's ass when she left for disrespect. In the prison, remember, it's a different mindset. It's all about respect. But the beginning of 90 days, there was always some poor son of a bitch that they got back there and they'd get him fired up. They said, look, this white boy is pretty white boy is coming on. Give him shit, man. He's a pussy. Give him shit. And, and buck up on him as soon as he gets here tonight. And sure enough, I get there. And one of them was a guy they called Juvenile from New Orleans. He was doing Juvenile Life. And at the time, I think he was probably like 19. And Juvenile Life in Louisiana is 21. And he and I ended up being cool later on. But they had him bucked up. And as soon as I'm making my count, man, the first thing I count, he was like, hey, you pretty white boy, you want to suck my dick? I said, no, but I'll be back to get your ass, bitch, in a few minutes when I get done with my count. And they, a old tear starts laughing because they know we're going to beat his ass. Or who's going to fight and we're going to have to fight and we're going to win. So that's the kind of control I had. Like I said, cool with most of them. Uh, sometimes, though, you get there and it'd be the, you could be cool as, cool as cool with them. But 
they might have got a low court right up from the day shift. So they were showing their ass, right? And, and they knew I was going to do what I had to do to bring the situation under control. And afterwards, we'd be cool again or not. It was their choice. So, but now to the main story of Finally Free. It was a Friday evening. I was going to make my initial round on the working cell block. And I had them pop the door and I go in. I'm making the round. Now, this cell block, it was cell block one, two, I think it was one. Cell block one is only cells on one side, y'all. And, and there's two men per cell. And the other side is a long row of windows. And it faced that unit two that I told you about, the back of unit two. And But I never looked out the fucking window. I didn't have any reason to. Every time I was going down the cell, I'm checking doors. I'm looking in the cells, looking for whatever going on. But the initial count is serious business. The whole prison is shut down. You have to call in your count. Control room adds up the count. Once they add it up, they'll clear the count. And then the regular prison, like the uh, rec room and shit like that, they can move around again. But it, it's serious that you get your count right. I'm going down. I'm going to start making my count. About a quarter way down the tier, I hear all this. They all start screaming and hooping and hollering. I'm like, hold the noise. And I'm making my count. And they kept on. I mean, I never heard them. All, all of them screaming. They go like, go, motherfucker. Go, go, go. I'm like, what the fuck? I said, hold the noise. And they're like, just, there was just mass screaming and, and, and banging on the doors and all that. I'm like, fuck, I got to go see what's going on. Something's not right. So I turn around and I stop my count. I walk back off the tier and I shut the door behind me. The Sergeant Cersei was in the control room. She said, you got anybody on the backyard? Because the working cell block did have a small wired-in rec yard, but we never took them out on the night shift. The day shift would take them out on the weekends. I said, no, why would I have somebody on the yard? Never been on the fucking yard in my life. And I said, why? She said, because the control center just called and they said there were two inmates on the yard. I said, that must have been what they were hollering about, but they're not my inmates. I said, I went back down and they had quieted down and it was fucking dead quiet. And I went down, I made my count. All my inmates are there. And and I come back up and said, my people are there. I went count to other tier. My people are there. Came through. Then the alarms go off. The whole prison goes on shutdown. Two inmates had escaped, and guess what? They went over the fence right there at the back of that unit. Uh, there was one corner where all the fences met together. I told you you had the outside perimeter fence with the Constantino top and an interior, and then you had the inside prison unit fence. And look, on the inside, the prison units and the rec yards and shit, they can't get within like 10 feet of, the, of those fences. If they do, the towers can shoot them. And, and so anyway, what happened was, there was this one spot where these fences converged right there in, in, in front of my unit, the uh, the working cell block and the admin seg tiers that face that side, which would have been to tier A and I think tier one. Two inmates found a weak spot, a chink in the armor, if you will, but it, I mean, they climbed up where those fences met. They threw something over uh, one of those prison blankets, like wool. They threw the blanket over and escaped, right? And it was a white guy and a black guy. And so what happens? Whole prison goes on lockdown and big shit. And it, the Department of Corrections has uh, the hunting escapees down to uh, a science. They have the DCI chase team, Dixon Correctional Institute chase team, that is does nothing but show up every day and train these bloodhounds on how to track inmates. One of the guys will get there and they'll go, one of the correctional officers that will work with the chase team will get there. And he'll go somewhere in the prison and act like he's escaping. And he'll wear a prison garb. 
and he'll run off and leave a track. The chase team gets there. They have to find where the dogs have to find where the track starts, and they chase them until they catch sass. I mean, that's all they did was train. And I used the DCI chase team all the time when I was in regular law enforcement, with state police and Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. On our big man hunts, we'd call out their dogs because they're the fucking best. That's all they did. So the chase team's coming. Every employee that is off duty gets called out to establish a perimeter. All call is what it's called. And the whole prison shut down. Nobody can move. No TVs, no phones, nothing. It's all shut down. As the people will respond, the higher-ups would be put them out on perimeters in different positions. They figure how far they can run and how far time. Now, DCI is, is kind of rural, at least it was at the time, and it has big fields around it and ravines and shit like that. And they've actually timed how far you can run on foot. So they could in all different directions. So they could tell you approximately how far the perimeter need to be set up. They set up roadblocks, the whole nine yards. And long story short, it goes to the weekend. Saturday evening, I remember they called the white guy. And he was a young kid, young to me now. I think he was like 23, 24. They called him, hide behind somebody's house. And they brought him in. Burl came, brought him in himself with the chase team guys. And they brought him to my admin sect here. And, and he came in. And he had been, this dude was all scratched the fuck up, beat up. I'm not saying they beat his ass, but they probably did. He's all scratched up, beat up, tired. You could tell he was exhausted. And they, and they were bringing him in. Burl Kane's literally got him by the back of his shirt and had me open the, the, Tier A. I said, Pop A. And then he said, First cell, Overton. And I said, Pop A1. Pop A1. Burl threw the boy in there and he said, Listen here, you're going to sit in this cell for the rest of your time at Dixon Correctional Institute. So you can look out that window right there. Every morning when you wake up, you're going to see where you went over that fence. And every uh, night before it gets dark, the last thing you're going to see out that window is where you went over that fence. And he turned around and he left, right? So, but the interesting thing about this is, y'all, this guy, I found out the uh, actually that weekend during the escape that he only had like 29 days left until he got out. Time was up. He made parole. He had 29 days left. He was getting parole. So when, when they put him on that man sick tier, they automatically put him on suicide watch. So we go in and strip him down. You butt naked. Metal bunk. They, tell you, they pull your mattress. You got nothing. No Bible. Nothing but your shitter. And it's cold in there too. That's the one that the admin secretaries were cold, the only ones that AC. And uh, anyway, we put them in there in a paper gown. The paper gown you can't hang yourself with, they can only be flush. And I asked him, I said, I said, hey, dude, you know, like later on, uh, maybe the next week or whatever, I was just making rounds. And sometimes, I, you know, bullshit with people help pass the time for me just like everybody else. And I asked him, I said, I said, why the fuck did you run, man? And he, I mean, he was cool. He wasn't disrespectful or anything. And, and, and he was like, he said, because I wanted to be free. I said, but you're getting out in 29 days. He said, yeah, but I wouldn't have been free, man. He said, I would have got out, but I would have been on paper, Well, uh, or, which means parole, y'all. If you ever hear a cop ask somebody, are you on paper? And they say, yes. Or somebody says, I'm on paper. That means they're on parole. He said, but I would have been on paper, Sarge. And he said, um, I would have been on paper, Sergeant. And then I would have had to go to a halfway house or whatever and report in and pay all these fees and shit. He said, I want to be free. And I said, well, I mean, I guess you were free for about 24 hours. He said, yeah, I was. He said, but I wasn't totally free. 
And he said, I said, what you mean? He said, but shit, everybody in the world was hunting me, right? Helicopters and dogs and everything else. I said, yeah, you're right. And, and, uh, but listen, this kid had AIDS. And in 1991, AIDS was some bad shit. I mean, it's bad now. I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but you were, everybody was dying from it back then. That was before they had all the advances in medicine they have nowadays. And the reason I know he had AIDS was because I had to escort the nurse around to give the medicine. And he took the AZT or ACT, whatever the hell it was called back then. And the nurse told me, he said that he's full blown AIDS. And you can hear, like, I mean, he was gone. I think he was probably fixing to die, y'all. Uh, uh, he was in like the later stages of the AIDS. And uh, he knew that. So, but um, I knew he had the full, full blown AIDS. Uh, I mean, like, advanced shit. And, and so, I don't know, a week or so later, it's about eight o'clock at night. I'm back at work. And I, my lieutenant was Lieutenant John Barlow's career correctional officer, black man, one of my best and dear friends. He taught me so much shit. I'm not saying John Barlow is the one who taught me about uh, hooking a, a convict or an inmate up with that, that, that gray area charge and popping through the screen to get control over him, you know, get the respect. But I'm not saying anybody neither. This dude knew his shit, right? So I'm going, I'm making a round down or maybe I was showering them up or something on my tier. And now on the, on the work of blocks, we had radios and, and I heard him holler. He said, over to get to tier A, get to tier A. And so I'm like, what the fuck? And, and I turn, and I figure he's fighting somebody or something. I turn, I run into my tier, the, the um, control room officer knew what was going on. She buzzed my door. I hit my door. I had to shut it back. Hit, remember I told you there's another interior door. I hit it, had to shut it back. And she, she said, right there, A1. I, uh, she opened it, tier to A door. And a, she opened the door to A tier. When she opens the door, I'm looking at Barlow. And he's got, uh, Lieutenant Barlow, he's got the door open to A1. And that white dude's down on the floor. And I run up. He's like, man, man, man. And, and I look down. And what I see, and I'll never forget it, is... He's got a little bitty, I'm talking about the inmate, has a little bitty string around his neck, okay? And now this string, y'all, is what they use to tie up the sheet bundles. They, the prisons do all their own laundry. But he had this little bitty string around his neck, and it was tied. Part of it was, had been tied to the screen in the cell. So what evidently what he did to, to hang himself, he tied it to the screen in the cell, and he tied it to his neck, and he leaned forward, but the the weight of his body broke it from the string from the screen. And so he was down on the ground, but the string was still on his neck. Shit. His face was black, but his, his mouth was covered in white foam and some blood. And I got down, I felt his, his wrist and, 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 and he's deader and shit. No way this dude wasn't dead. Right. Or I was like, Hey man, Hey man, you know, CPR, you know, CPR. He said, he said, give him CPR. I said, man, fuck that motherfucker. <laughs> I said, I said, I'll tell you, man, listen, y'all, we didn't have face masks back then, those safety face masks they use now when they're giving people CPR. Back then, and I gave plenty of people CPR, but when you gave them CPR, it was lips on lips. And he had that shit. I already knew he was dead. He'd already already, uh, shit himself and pissed himself. His body fluids had released. And and anyway, I said, you know, I hollered out, call the ambulance, and it's already been called, and, and he's deader and shit. Dead in the door. Now, actually, he was almost uh, a little bit of lividity was starting to set in. And I checked his neck, and, and I didn't want to touch the string on his neck because of the, they, it had to be investigated. 
touched his neck. He's deader and shit, not breathing the whole nine yards. I was like, fuck that, man. I mean, I know he's got full-blown AIDS uh, uh, and all that stuff on his mouth, and I wasn't getting him back then. Like I said, you get, you got it, your chances of surviving were slim. I'm looking at the kid. I say kid now. I'm looking at this guy. I'm thinking, fuck, man. I mean, the he was still on suicide watch. That was part kind of way, the warden's way, I guess, of punishing him, even though it had been a couple of weeks. But first thing you do on suicide watch tiers when, when you get on duty, they weren't my responsibility, is you go down. If they're on suicide, you have them open that door, and you go in and make sure there's not shit in that cell that they can kill themselves with. And what happened is uh, the inmates will pass some shit. To, um, or they call it kiting it down the tier where they pass shit down the tier with a string. They will actually give them shit to hang themselves for entertainment purposes. You know, they may, might be like, I want to kill myself. I want to give myself, just give me a, you know, da 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 da. They'll do it. They don't give a fuck. I mean, they, most of them, you know, psychopaths, right? So, and that's what happened in this case. He, he had actually talked to another inmate uh, that was in on some high court charge waiting, awaiting his time. That inmate got a trustee to get him a sheet from one of the sheet bundles. The, the inmates that were on the the way in the high court charges on admin secretaries, they had sheets and blankets in their cells. And so he got that inmate got the trustee to give him the the string from the thing. He kited it down to the dude in A1 and homie killed himself, uh, hung himself to death, and he was finally free. Finally free. Anyway, that's it, y'all. Hope you enjoy the story, this episode, Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I know it's different. Uh, I know I could have told so much more into it, getting to talk about corrections. I loved it. The, uh, it's just a crazy, crazy different world. And I'll probably do some more correction stories in the future, um, specifically with uh, murderers and stuff like that. But to give you an insight of a different area of law enforcement and the corrections really is law enforcement. I mean, that the, the corrections wouldn't exist without cops and cops wouldn't exist without prisons. And, and it's just a whole different world, a whole different mindset of what happens in there. And this kid, um, is going to be free, finally free. So anyway, that's it. I love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. Courtney Coco, hang in a little bit longer, y'all. Your prayers are working. Keep doing what you're doing. Miss Barbara Blunt's case, keep your tips coming. You've been showing me the love this last two weeks, lifers. I've got some great tips. We're working it actively. Stick with it. Uh, share it. Sharing equals tips. Every time it gets shared or I do a, another episode and, and I ask for tips, I get them. And then no tip is stupid, y'all. Just like on Courtney's case, no tip is stupid. And hang in there. Uh, the worm is turning. Uh, y'all keep doing what you're doing. Keep uh, showing your support or at least back off of APD for a little bit. And, and um, as soon as I know something, I'll let you know. And on podcast stuff, got a lot of announcements, y'all. One, you know what? I forgot to tell y'all. We passed 2 million downloads, 2 million listens. And I, we passed a million in February, and we passed uh, the the next million like in in second week of May. So we're congratulations, lifers! And you have we have over two million listens to the show. We continue to grow. I continue to grow every day. 
Um, I love and appreciate each and every one of y'all. Patreon members, you know you're going to get your video. You'll get this commercial-free episode uh, a day earlier than the rest of lifers. Y'all that are listening to this on Saturday, I love you just as much. I understand if you don't want to be a patron, you can't be a patron member. I get it. Uh, I love you just as much. But if you can, continue to like us and share us. And y'all, we have, we're doing an Instagram push right now because Lord knows we've mastered Facebook. I mean, 19,000 plus on one of our pages and thousands and thousands on all the rest of our pages on Facebook. So let's push Instagram. It's at real life, real crime. I'm posting something on there every single day now. Go and check it out. Some cool videos. They even got one of me dancing uh, or a couple of me dancing, I think. But the just different fun stuff. Uh, my personal Instagram, you can follow me on that too. Follow Real Life Real Crime. It's at Real Life Real Crime. My personal one is at Overton Woody. That's W-O-O-D-Y. So y'all f- follow it. Check it out. You're going to see a lot of cool stuff on there. Uh, our crew page, y'all, Real Life Real Crime friends, fans, and crew page. Continue to invite and, and uh, other people to it and share it. It's, the numbers will be important in the conclusion of Courtney Coco's case. So y'all, have I've asked that and y'all have done it. So thank you for doing it. I appreciate it. Instagram, let's rock it. And, and uh, y'all go check it out. Lots of cool stuff on there. Don't forget we have YouTube and Twitter and all that other good stuff. Uh, congratulations, lifers. You're the best in the world. I appreciate you. Two million listens in, in what? February to March, April, May. Should two million listens in 15 months, that's pretty impressive uh, by anyone's standards. And I'm growing rapidly, but, but it's because of y'all continuing to like and share. And hit me up, uh, questions, complaints, gripes, bitches, whatever. I, I try to answer. I do answer everybody on Facebook, and I'm now trying to answer everybody on Instagram. Uh, I will continue to do that. I'll be responsive to y'all, the fans. If it wasn't for y'all, I wouldn't have a show. And I love you, and I appreciate you. Else, oh, this this week uh, I'm going to be a guest on a podcast for Lopa. That's the the Louisiana Organ uh, Association, y'all. I'm going to give you the. Uh, well, I'll put the links in the show to it. But it's it's been I've been asked to be a guest on it, and they're going to uh, be fe- featuring real life, real crime, and the Livingston Parish Literacy and Technology Center on the show. So I will be doing the post of that, but y'all check out their podcast and we'll give it to you real quick and then we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. So y'all, the, the podcast is called the gifted life.org. That's T H E G I F T E D L I F E.org. Yeah. Go check it out. They they have 130 something Plus episodes and they, they feature someone different on each episode. But they, you know, you're given the miracle of life. And if, you, if you're not an organ donor, please sign up. You're not going to care when you're dead anyway, people. The, the, uh, give the gift of life, be a true hero. And I told you all about a homicide case that I worked, but uh, this one in particular where the, the young lady's organs were went to all these different people, including a doctor. So it's, it's important if you can give the gift of life. Y'all check out their their podcast, thegiftedlife.org, or their website, and, and I'll be on their show on, on July the 1st, which I think is like Wednesday. 
Happy Fourth of July to you. God bless America. Oh, this this week, if you're buying fireworks this Fourth of July, and you're in Baton Rouge or the surrounding areas, Ascension Parish, Livingston, Tangipahoa, wherever, you need to go to Prairieville. You need to go to Tom Play Fireworks on Highway 42, right across from Diaz Tires. Guaranteed best selection. You've got all the stuff that goes boom. And the guaranteed best customer service, they'll hook you up. They know what they're talking about and the best price. And when you go to checkout, use your promo code RLRC or say Real Life Real Crime. You'll get an extra discount. Telling y'all, Tom Play Fireworks, Prairieville, they're open June 29th, all the way through the 4th. So y'all get there this week, get what you need to make it go boom. Happy birthday, America. We love you all. Thank you for for everything. And I'm Woody Overton, your host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Till next time or ever, don't let me catch you down on murder by you. Peace. Real Life Real Crime is a true crime podcast brought to you by Woody Overton and executive producer Toby Tomplay.